It has been called by some people the quiet quitting. Slowly, one by one, people have dropped out of church. Church attendance has been declining every year since 1975. And today, this morning, more than 70% of Americans not in church anywhere. 70%. By 2018, church attendance had dropped below 50% of Americans for the first time in the history of our nation. And then after that, COVID hit, and now church attendance has plummeted. You drive around on Sunday morning, and the parking lots are not nearly as full as they used to be. Sunday nights you drive around, and some congregations you'll find two cars, three cars. Wednesday night, the same. Maybe a couple of cars, four or five cars in some churches. That's all. Today, church attendance is down across every age group. Gen X, that's uh, Americans in their late 40s, early 50s. Pre-COVID, 41% of Gen X attended church. After COVID, 28% attend. It dropped 13%, and all it took was a pandemic to get them out of church. Millennials, that's the ages of late 30s, early 40s. Fewer than one in three attend church. Four in ten never go. And 50% of millennials in America are either atheist or agnostic. 50%. Gen Z, that's uh, ages 11 to 25. 40% of them are agnostic or atheist. This group has dropped the most in church attendance. Only 28% attend maybe once a month, maybe. 28%. Among teens who went to church during high school regularly. So they are here every Sunday in high school. Once they graduate, 7 in 10 never go back. 7 out of 10. Since COVID in America, 4,900 churches have closed their doors. 49 church, 4,900 churches in America since COVID have shut down. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal a while back about this phenomenon, and one woman said, church used to be an anchor. It's, it just isn't anymore. And the church has become the neglected institution in America. You being here this morning, you're the exception. Most people aren't in church anywhere. And so I have to ask, is this something God desires? I don't think so. How did God set up the church? How did he design it and why? Well, let's look at Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. 
Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, why, or rather who, do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. A lot of good things came out of the Protestant Reformation. That was 16th century. And a lot of good things came up. By and large, the Roman Catholic Church had been primarily the church from the early church all the way through Christian history until the 16th century. And because of the Protestant Reformation, there became an emphasis that the church does not save you, that personal faith in Jesus Christ is what saves you. And so that, that was a good thing because that is biblical. And that, that's a good thing. So a lot of good things came out of the Protestant Reformation. But one thing still lingers from it that is bad. And that is, we have swung the pendulum too far. The pendulum over here, the church saves you. You need to go to the church for grace and salvation. The church saves you. We've swung the pendulum so far away from that is that the church isn't very important anymore. And that's the pendulum swinging. Because I still hear people say, oh, pastor, the church doesn't save you. You don't have to go to church that often. What do you hear? The church doesn't save you. And they're right. It doesn't. It doesn't make it unimportant. It doesn't make it that it shouldn't be a part of your spiritual life and your spiritual growth. No, the church does not save you, but don't swing the pendulum so far to say the church is not that important. I can go to church and still be a, a good Christian. I mean, I, I cannot go and still be a good Christian. I hear that all the time, and that's false. Because God wants to be a part of your service and fellowship and development, the gathering of God's people. You should be there. My extended family, most of them, almost all of them say they're saved. Hardly any go to church. We live in the Bible Belt, and in the Bible Belt, you stop anybody on the street, most people are going to tell you they're a Christian. You a Christian? Absolutely. Have you been saved? Absolutely. You go to church? No. You hear that all the time. You saved? Absolutely. Go to church? No. It's not important. It didn't save you. 
And all throughout our culture, the bride of Christ is being devalued. As I said in my family, my extended family is very large, wife's family is very large, probably if you had both families together, 175 maybe. I would venture to say almost every one of them say they are born again believers. And I was thinking yesterday, out of about 175 of us, I can think of three families that go to church. It's not important. But they're saved. So, Jesus commands us to be in church. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, the closer we get to Jesus' return, more people should be in church. Are you watching the Middle East? Do you think we're closer now than we were? There should be more people here. So it's a command. So this morning, I, I want us to look at the passage where Jesus established his church. And I want us to see, what is he getting at? Why did he establish a body? And why did he command us to be here? First of all, number one on your outline, let's look at the setting, verse 13. Now our text this morning, Matthew 16, is situated between the third and fourth discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. The third discourse talks about the kingdom of God primarily. The fourth discourse talks about relationships in the kingdom of God. And you find in both discourses, you find both faith in Christ and opposition to the Messiah both. And in the middle of, that, of those three and four discourses, Jesus, who had called the twelve disciples, decided they'd been following him for three years, decided it's time to get them all by themselves away from where they are, and I want to find out who do they think I am. They'd been following for three years. They'd seen miracles. They'd heard teachings. And now it's time to declare, who do you think I am? Just another man or more? So he took them away to a quiet place to ask them two questions. He took them a long ways for only two questions. They were in the Galilee area of northern Israel. And the Bible says, verse 13, they went to the district of Caesarea Philippi. If you've ever been from Galilee to Caesarea Philippi, it's about a two-hour and 25-minute bus ride. It's 41 miles. And they walked it. Now, Jerusalem is a little further south, and so from Jerusalem all the way up to Caesarea Philippi is 126 miles. It is a three-and-a-half-hour bus ride, and they walked it. Why did they go so far for two questions? Well, some scholars have said, well, Jesus wanted to get them away to the peace and quiet. There's an awful lot of peace and quiet in 41 miles. 
Why did he go there? Caesarea Philippi was a small little town at the base of Mount Hermon in northern Israel. In fact, it's the farthest north Jesus ever went that's recorded in the Bible. It's at the very northern edge. It's at the Lebanon border, in fact, today of Israel, Mount Hermon. A little town at the base of it. And Herod, the, uh, Herod Philip, the tetrarch of Galilee at the time, he went in and made this little town a little bit bigger. It was 1,100 miles in elevation. And he honored Caesar and himself, and so named it Caesar and Philip, Caesarea Philippi. And this little town grew into the ancient center of pagan worship. Two temples were there, the temple of Pan, you know, the half goat and the half man, the picture. That's, that's the temple of Pan and the temple of Zeus. Both were there, located beneath a rock formation, which the ancients believed to be the gateway to the underworld. So they called this formation there at Caesarea Philippi, they called it the gates of hell. They thought when you went into this rock formation, you were entering the underworld. And it was at this location and in this setting Jesus asked the disciples two questions. Go to number two in your outline, the questions, verses 14 and 16. So there they are gathered at this location and probably all around. It wasn't quiet at all. Gathered all around. It's probably worshiping Zeus and worshiping Pan. You have nothing but pagans gathered around. And they're in the midst of pagans this little bitty group of 13 people, Jesus and 12 disciples. And he looked at them and he asked, who do men say the Son of Man is? He, he did not ask, who do men say the Son of God is? Or he didn't ask, who do people say I am? Or he didn't ask, who do people say Jesus is? He asked, who do men say the son of man, man is? Why, why did he ask that question? Because he was asking, do you think I'm just an ordinary man? You've seen me for three years. Is there more to me than just being a man? Am I more than that? The disciples probably began to answer all at one time. Well, some say John the Baptist, and no, some say you're him come back from the dead, and some say you're Elijah back from the dead, and some say you're Jeremiah back from the dead, and some say you're one of the prophets back from the dead, because all of those beliefs were going around. You remember John the Baptist, he was beheaded by Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas feared John the Baptist would resurrect and come back and haunt him. So that story was going around. Maybe Jesus is John the Baptist. His head reattached. And story going around, maybe he's Elijah. Elijah, you know, in the Old Testament, never died. He just, he just went up in a whirlwind. And maybe he's come back. And it's Jesus. That story was going around. And there were some who believed it was Jeremiah. He remembered in the Old Testament he was killed. But Jesus and Jeremiah, they had some similarities. They both had authority. They both were, were misunderstood. They both suffered at times. And the story was going around, this may be Jeremiah, back from the dead. 
And so the disciples voiced everything that was going around about who Jesus was. It's interesting, nobody answered, some say you're the Messiah. Nobody said that. But who do you say I am was the second question. It really doesn't matter what everybody else says. Who do you say? The word you there is in the emphatic position in the Greek construction. It's at the very first of the sentence, which makes it emphatic. And it's also in the plural. Who do you all say I am? And he still asks that question. Well, Peter spoke up. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in that one statement, Peter confirmed everything there is to confirm about Jesus. You are Christ, humanity. You are God, deity. You're both. Yes, I'm looking at a human being In the eyes, you look human, but there is more to you, Jesus. You're God. And Peter declared his belief that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah of the Old Testament. He's the hope of Israel. He was rejecting all the pagan gods around him and all the worshiping that was going around and said, no, Jesus, it's you. And that is a picture of what you and I have to do as well. We live in a culture that's turning away from church, turning away from God, turning away from God's Word. We live in a culture that's saying Jesus is too exclusive. There are other ways to heaven. And of all the voices you hear, you and I, like Peter, have to stand up and say, no, he's the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through him. Jesus is Lord. You and I have to stand up in our culture of paganism around us. And make the same declaration as Peter. He had followed Jesus, hoping, but he'd seen enough. And trusting Christ and confirming that Jesus is Lord is more than just adding Jesus to your life. It's it's giving him your life. Sometimes I think we get the impression, we have the invitation, and Michael will stand up here, and Jim will stand up over here. We have the impression, now you come down and you just add Jesus to your life. Oh, that's not what we're asking you to do. If you just want to add Jesus to your life, just stay, stay back there. Because the, 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 the command he gives us is to turn everything of your life over to Jesus. Not add him. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and He has all of you you have to give. That's what Peter gave. Look at Jesus' response, number 3, verse 17. Number 3, Jesus' response. I want you to notice something. All the disciples were saying who they said Jesus was. Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus did not respond to the group. He responded to Peter and talked to him only. You see, Jesus responds to individual faith. 
So he didn't talk to the disciples. He just talks to Peter. Peter's the one that confessed. So he's going to talk to Peter. And he turned to Peter and he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. The word blessed, makarios, it means highly favored one. Now, he wasn't telling Peter, you have special privileges nobody else has. He wasn't saying, Peter, you are the first pope. He wasn't saying, he was saying that you're highly favored. He said the same thing to Mary. Mary was highly favored, chosen of the Lord. Blessed. Now, Peter became one of the leaders of the early church. Yes, but so did James. He wasn't anointing him as pope. He was saying, you're highly favored because of your confession. Simon Barjona. He called him his full name. Somebody calls you your full name, they're about to tell you something important, aren't they? <laughs> when my mother said Gregory Lamons, I knew something was coming. Simon Barjona. You see, in Hebrew, bar means son of, still does. Simon, son of Jonah, that was your last name. In the Bible, it was bar, whatever your dad's name was. And so, it was a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew, son of Yehonan, of Jonah. And Jesus used Peter's full name. He only called him his full name three times. When he was called as a disciple... Here, and at the end of his life, whenever Jesus restored him after the campfire denials, all three times, Simon Barjona, something important is about to follow. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed it. Peter, whenever you said, I'm the Christ, this is, this is God-given insight. You didn't come up with this on your own. And you know, you don't come to faith in Christ on your own. You don't come to faith in Christ by, in your own flesh and blood, thinking through logically, okay, now is he the Christ? He's the best, the best of the options. No, no, you come whenever the Spirit of God draws you. John 6, no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. So whenever I preach or the Word is, is preached or your Sunday school teacher teaches and that something that you feel inside, whenever that happens, is the Holy Spirit drawing you. And whenever He draws you, you come to Christ. It's God-given insight. It's not flesh and blood. And then Jesus, number four, starts talking about his church. Number four, verses 18 and 19, Jesus' church. Now listen to what he said next. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, he's about to say something. You make your declaration, Peter, I'm going to make mine. Listen up. I'll tell you something. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
Now, he's about to make a play on words on Peter's name. The name Peter, Greek, is Petros, which means little small rock, pebble. But Cephas, the word for rock that he uses, here, Peter, you're upon this rock, he doesn't use the word Petros over again. He uses an Aramaic word that's very rare. You rarely use it, you rarely heard it in Aramaic. It's the word Kepha. We get the word Cephas from it, as it's transliterated. So he says, you are Petros, and upon this Kepha, I will build my church. And Kepha means massive boulder. So upon you, little Peter, pebble, I will build something massive. I'll build my church. Now, there's controversy today over this phrase, upon this rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Who's the rock? Three theories. One theory is Peter's the rock. Jesus was saying, this theory says, Peter, you are the rock, and upon you I will build my church. And so Peter became the first pope. That's what this theory says. He's the rock. And Peter is the one that became the first pope. And everyone after Peter in a succession, all the way directly from Peter, has spoken and as popes speak, it's God's authority speaking. That's the first theory. That the rock is Peter. Second theory. The rock is Christ. That perhaps he gestured to himself. As he's saying, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. Maybe he gestured to himself. We don't know what, we don't know if he did or not. We do know that the disciples were not confused at all about what he meant. No confusion here. Maybe he's talking about himself. Because later on he is referred to as the rock. As the stone the builders rejected, God made the cornerstone. So later on he is referred to that. Maybe he was referring to himself. This rock I'll build my church. But there's a third theory. That whenever Jesus said upon this rock, he was talking about Peter's confession you're the Christ so the rock was the confession the rock is the confession Jesus is Lord and that's what builds the church every church that confesses Jesus is Lord is the rock of Christ that's the third theory I would say most scholars are third theory some second but most the third theory he would build his church. Did you notice he didn't say he would build God's church? Did you notice that? He didn't say, I will build the Father's church. He said, I will build my church. The church is Jesus' bride. It's not ours. It's his That shows his deity. 
This church. There's a theory out there today. There's a teaching out there today. Jesus no longer has authority over his church because we're not in the church age. You hear that? You hear that out there? That's false. Jesus will always have authority over his church. It's his. And the word church, you'll see it on the screen, is the word ecclesia. It was, a, it was not a religious term. It was not a church, it was not a church term. It was a secular term. The communities would have ecclesias. It just means the called out ones, an assembly called out for a particular purpose. And so in the communities, they had ecclesias of everything, called out ones for a purpose. And so you and I are called out of our culture to be different. We have a purpose. And that's to extend the gospel. We're the called out ones. And then he said the gates of hell, the pagan view there at Caesarea Philippi of the underworld, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then I, I look at America. And it sure looks like Jesus was wrong. The gates of hell's prevailing against us. Not nearly as many people here as used to be. 70% don't even go. Looks like hell's prevailing. Was he wrong? One writer recently said, God may not be dead, but his church is on hospice. No, it's not. Churches have died in Europe. Churches are dying in America. Friends, I want to tell you this morning, there are churches around this world that are alive and thriving and vital, and God is at work in countries other than here. All around the globe, His church is strong. He never leaves Himself without a remnant. We may need to pray for revival here, but His church around the world is strong, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Now, there's one more phrase that's controversial. Let me mention before I close. The very end. You are Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on, in heaven. And some have interpreted this to mean that all authority was given to the church. That priest must administer everything you get. If you get salvation, priest, administer it to it. Administer it to you. If you're to receive grace, priest, give you grace. That's called sacerdotalism. The word sacerdotal means priestly. And so that means that the church, you go to the church and the priest will dispense to you everything that you need. And that's what the verse means. It's what some say. But the best translation is, shall have been bound and shall have been loosed. The Greek language. So another view is the certainty with which the church's decisions and heaven's decisions accord with one another emphasizing the authority that Jesus has bestowed upon his church. So the church is vitally important. And folks should be a part of your life. There should not be empty pews. Believers should be here. should be a part of your Christian life. 
your growth, your service, and your fellowship, and your worship, and who you are. Well, the church isn't going anywhere. Maybe neglected here in America. But God will always have a purpose for his bride, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Back in 2020, uh, an author by the name of Francis Meslay published a book entitled Abandoned Churches. Here's a copy of the, of the cover of the book, Unclaimed Places of Worship. What Francis Meslay did went around from 2012 to 2019 in Europe, because in Europe, churches are dying and closing every day went around Europe and photographed churches who've stopped meeting. The congregation has disbanded, the church has fallen into disrepair, and just an old building that's beginning to crumble. And he took one picture after another after another and compiled this into a book and showed the pictures. Europeans have stopped attending church, and all you see in many places in Europe, crumbling old church buildings litter the landscape. You wonder, you wonder if we're next here in our nation. But it's sad as you turn from one page of the book to the next of abandoned churches that used to be vital. Now all it is is broken glass and wind whistling through and maybe a roof leaking here and there. That's all you see. No signs of life. Let's look at some of these out of the book. Here's one of the pictures of an old church, beautiful church in Europe. Nobody's there anymore. Look at the next picture. Beautiful church, vital, used to be people singing and the word read and people encountering God. Look at it. Look at the next picture. An old church, nothing left. Europe, abandoned. Used to be people there. Look at the next picture. I wonder if that will ever happen here. up to us father I pray today that we would we would make your bride as important as you made her God on those days whenever we wake up and say well it's not that important if I go or not I pray that you would remind us of the importance you placed on it and no church doesn't save us Church doesn't administer grace. But Lord, may we not swing the pendulum too far to say church is unimportant. And may we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But Lord, I just pray that we would be faithful to you and to your bride. So Lord, during this invitation, whatever decisions you want us to make, I pray that we would make these God, whether it's to receive Jesus, not add him to our life, but receive him as taking over our life, I pray that decision to be made as well. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.